Welcome to another episode of the Canadian Podcast. Today we are live from uh, the annual policy conference with Dairy Farmers of Canada. We are here in Ottawa and in person, my co-host Sarah Sash. How's it going, Sarah? It's great. I was just uh, chuckling away here. We're talking about our guest coming up today, who is Rory Christie. He is joining us um, from Scotland, actually, and he's speaking um, here at the conference in, at Ottawa with Dairy Farmers of Canada. Andrew Campbell, Sarah, formerly Burns, we're looking forward to this. We caught up with him last night, actually, and we're able to chat a bit about his uh, life in Scotland. What did you What did you think? It just felt like home to me. Like the, <laughs> there is nothing but Scottish ancestry behind me. Um, and he may have mentioned that when he said Andrew Campbell is quite a strong <laughs> Scottish name. But you're right, like in terms of the conversation we had with him and, and, and both in this interview as well as, um, you know, kind of in just, you know, casual conversation with him, like just sounds like a gorgeous place to be having a farm right in the ocean. I know, I will be getting his number. <laughs> <laughs> Probably need to do a follow-up interview with the pod cow in Scotland, Sarah. <laughs> anyway, just so that you all know what we are talking about, we're going to jump into the interview uh, with Rory, talk to him about his place, and uh, we'll get right to it right after this. Meet a Canadian dairy farmer. Planting one tree, then hundreds more. To naturally purify the air. Preserving wildflowers for pollinators and nurturing wetlands for healthier soil so wildlife can prosper. Biodiversity is in our nature. Working towards a sustainable future. That's Dairy Farming Forward. We're in! Our guest hails from Scotland where he runs a family business, Dury Farming Company. He is a founding chairman of the Milk Supplier Association. He recently formed the Fast Breeders Co-op, which I'd love to know more about, which functions to deliver applied research solutions in dairy genetics. In 2018, he became a director of the Scottish Agricultural Organization Society, and in 2021 became vice chairman. Rory Christie, welcome to the Canadian Podcow. First things first, we're always curious um, to find out more about your farm. So, Tell us more. I mean, we finally got an international farmer on the pod cow. What's the deal with your place? What's the deal? Oh, well, it's a uh, it's very pretty farm. It's beside the sea in Scotland. Uh, the fields go right down to the beach. We have 1,100 grazing cows. They're little cows, about 500 kilos, and they're crossbred cows. That's the important thing to remember. They, they're Jersey Cross Frisian or Holstein. They, gave, they give 5,500 litres a cow and they, they eat predominantly grass or, or grass silage. About 90, 90% of their diet, I would say. We buy 10% in. And that's what we do on a daily basis. Our, our farm has a long history, though. Of, um, my grandfather came to the area that we live in as a, as a farm, or a, what they called a factor for a big estate, an aristocratic family. Anyway, he ended up buying, him and some other local guys ended up buying part of that land up. And then after that, he grew it. We, he's, uh, my father and him specialised in actually pig production from Hui, from the cheese factories. Because because where we live is a very moderate climate and it can grow grass. There's lots of cows and there were lots of factories, lots of cheese factories. There aren't now, there's only one big one. But 
we took all the weight from these factories and we grew a great big pig business. We also had one of the first broiler units in the UK. And alongside that, there were five dairy units. So it's always been uh, animal production. And uh, my father and grandfather grew a very strong business. And then, you know, as time goes on, all great things come to an end. And we went through a really tough period in the 90s, 2000s. And um, by the time I came home, we had to rationalise the business really significantly. And, and then my brother, not long after us, and we had to reinvest in everything. We had to buy out family. We had to buy out non-family shareholders. And we had to reinvest in the pig unit, reinvest in the dairy. I suppose what they would call it in business, we rationalised. And my farm business consultant would tell us that we did a generation of work in 10 years. Um, so that's put us under a bit of pressure, a bit of debt, you could say. We closed five dairies, down to one. At one point, I had 1,500 cows going through a 44-point rotary, which, if you know about these things, is a bit mental. If you had a breakdown, you didn't finish milking the same day you started. And anyway, with time, we've came back a bit. We're 1,100 cows now. And we also reinvested in the pig unit. In 2011, we built a brand new greenfield site. We had 1,100 sows previously, selling about 18 pigs a year. Now we've got 200 sows selling 30 pigs a year. And, you know, my brother is one of the top pig producers in the country. He's extremely technically able. Um, uh, and would be vying for first and second in the country when it comes to technical performance. But you need it, because without that, it doesn't, it can't pay the level of debt back that we've got. Um, so yeah, it's very much a family business. Him and I, are, we now own the business between us, and he's got three kids, and I've got two kids, and my two surprised us. Rachel and I, that's my wife. Rachel and I thought we would maybe get retirement. But the girls have gone off to study agriculture. <laughs> Anna's doing agriculture in Newcastle and Tilly's gone off to Edinburgh to, to do business, rural business management. So maybe, maybe the next generation will be involved. Well, it's, a, it's an exciting family business and obviously one that's no shortage of things to do around your place with all of that going on, which is why you took up another job with the Scottish Agricultural Organization Society. Um, you're the vice chairman there because that is, as we're here at the annual policy conference, that's part of your role there is what you were speaking on. Can you talk about the society, what that co-op looks like? Uh, yes, right. So it's, it's a cooperative of cooperatives. So our members are cooperatives from all sectors right across Scotland. There's, you know, grain, grain uh, selling and storing cooperatives. We've got a shellfish cooperative up in Shetland that does mussels. Um, we've got uh, big, huge co-ops like Arla and, and First Milk, who are our dairy cooperatives. But, you know, bigger ones than mine, which is just a small dairy cooperative. Um, we've got beef marketing cooperatives and pig marketing cooperatives. And we... We provide a lot of, I would proudly say that we are um, considered the honest broker in Scotland and often if there's a problem at policy or government level, they will come to us to help or to, for, for advice or seek expertise. We have project managers that go out to try and help form new co-ops. So if a, you know, if a, if a group of farmers have an idea and they want, to, they want to form a cooperative, then we will bring in the expertise to help them do that. Um, and I, I think what we do is we go out there unblocking lots of relationship problems, trying to help um, uh, form 
long-term improved policy for for farmers in Scotland. Um, so yeah, it's a very important organisation within Scotland now, and increasingly so. We're um, we are on a change programme. We are um, developing companies within our organisation. So we have one that looks at quality assurance. So we uh, are the body that uh, provides the, the service of quality assurance. So the guys go out on the farm and they collect the data against the standards. And um, they, so that we have a client like Quality Meet Scotland um, and we run their quality assurance programme for them. And that, so that's, that's called FIA, Food Integrity Assured. Then we've got Smart Rural, which is a, a technology company, really. It does sensors, like the sensors that are in my project I was talking about for energy reduction. Um, so what happened, well, for instance, in that project, we are putting sensors on either side of the, the water heaters in a dairy farm. So the flow of water in, the flow of water out, sensors on the temperature to understand the temperature. And then we're bringing that data back and, and trying to understand it so that the farmers can then, and visualise what's happening for the farmers, so they can then say, right, well, actually, we're heating our water up for two hours longer than we need to. Let's, let's not do that. Let's save that energy. And then you do that multiple times in multiple places. Um, so Smart Rural engage and try and provide those kind of solutions. Scott EID, which is also an SOS project, Scottish Electronic Identification. So that's animal ID um, and traceability. So we manage and run the traceability for Scotland. All the births, deaths, uh, it's like a herd register. And so we're collecting all that data and the key thing is it's owned by the industry. So it's farmer's data, so then we can mine that data. And when you align that data with things like slaughter data, you can start to see uh, trends and you can start to see, well, you know, why, why is this farm more efficient than that farm? Are those daily live weight gains better here and there? And you can start to benchmark and start to create data that helps the farmers across the country level make better decisions and informs government. So I found it fascinating in your presentation that you just gave to the, to the delegation here, how we were talking about all these different sustainability measures, the technologies that you've employed on your farm, just a whole different style of, of raising animals than we might be experiencing here in terms of how you're doing it with the grass fields and whatnot. Um, but it seems that clearly sustainability practices are something that run throughout all of your operations. Can you talk about the importance of those in terms of how it's evolved in Scotland over the years and why it's so important to you and your family businesses in terms of how you manage your operations? Because we have an unregulated market and we've been at the mercy of, of almost bigger, more organised forces than, than the farmers. Um, we, ha we had that regulated market for 100 years, from, from 1933 and we did 1994. And it... It meant that the farmers didn't have to cooperate. Whereas Europe had been cooperating for, for 100 years before that. So we come out in very naive. And the milk price has not been sustainable. It's always just been just enough to keep you going. And for some people, not enough. So over that period, we went from 30,000 dairy farmers in the UK to 7,500 today. So 75% change in the number of farmers. And those farmers had become extremely efficient. 
And it's no surprise that there's nearly the same number of cows and nearly the same amount of milk. So the need to survive, the need to be efficient has driven a lot of the change and driven the investment. Because you had to find these efficiencies. Because if your cost of production is too low, too high, you're, you know, you're done for. And so the sustainability piece comes in like, just like another challenge. It's just another challenge. And um, it is for us to be able to communicate that challenge and how difficult it is, but we're willing to do it. Because when you talk about that challenge, like it is one where you, you talked about it today, you know, the pressure comes from kind of all these sides, right? Retailers are demanding it, processors are demanding it, partly because governments are demanding it, partly because consumers are demanding it. Um, so, so give me an idea. You've got all these demands coming in that says you need to be, you know, and, and, and we can say more sustainable, but you need to reduce your carbon footprint, period. Um, you know, and, and you're measuring that uh, footprint now. Talk a little bit about a couple of the strategies that you've done on your farm, the investments you've made that you are trying to directly say, we are reducing carbon by doing this. Yeah. So I, quite, I, I understood quite early on that there was a problem with baselining. With, I, I wanted to get a nat, what they called a natural carbon audit. I wanted to understand what my natural carbon was so I could learn and quantify how much of a problem I had or not. I couldn't, I couldn't find anybody to do it. I couldn't find enough experts. There wasn't anybody who could go out there actually and count my birds or my bees. And there, there was emerging um, experts who could start to look at your soil. And, and it became apparent to me that, well, the carbon, you know, all the talks, it's in the, the carbon's in the soil. And I said, we better measure that. And I needed to farm better anyway. And so technology was coming along to be able to uh, GPS map your farm soil sample it. And, and we've made some mistakes because we soil sampled it and we soil sampled to 15 centimetres and it cost me 25,000 pounds to soil sample the farm. Wow. To discover that we needed to be at a metre, not, not 15 centimetres. So, but we, luckily there are modeling, that, there is modeling you can do and it can, it can understand what, what your carbon is um, su sufficiently so. There's a level of uncertainty. But the next time we do, we'll be at a meter. Um, so we, we did that, we, you know, we soil sampled, but that helps me understand my pH, it helps me understand my NPK, all, all that jazz. And the critical thing that I understood is, uh, it's actually, sorry, so I also wanted to reduce my fertilizer. Fertilizer, nitrogen fertilizer is a big problem. Let's get that down. How do we do that, right? Well, we, you know, everybody used to have clover, and then people just stopped using it. And the reason they actually stopped using it is because there's no clover-safe pesticides in the UK. They banned them all, and there are still no clover-safe pesticides. So establishing clover is difficult. So unless you're an organic farmer, you probably didn't have much clover in your pasture. Anyway, it seemed common sense to me, if this stuff can bring it out of the sky for free, I better have it. And there's also a bunch of nitrogen locked up in your soil, um, organic, soil organic nitrogen, and I need to give it conditions, the soil, put the soil into condition to release that. So I'm thinking, well, all this stuff's for free, I better have some of it. So I started to try and establish clover, and, and you know, I was told at the time, well, you need to have, your pH is pretty good, Rory, you're at six, you don't really need to do too much. But then 
quickly the learning became you needed to be at 6.5, and now it's 6.7. So I, we, you have to put lime on to get your pH up. So we put a pile of lime on. I mean, serious tens of thousands of tons of stuff to get us to 6.7. And it, it is right, the clover establishes much easier. And, then, and now we're there, clover's, clover is establishing relatively easily. And we're now including herbal lays, including herbals like chicory and, and plantain and things like that. And again, they need that good pH. So that's about trying to get the soil um, into really good condition. And we, had, we actually were really lucky. We had this, the World Soil Convention had their annual conference in Glasgow and they came to the farm. And so we had all these mad scientists digging the farm up. And they were getting really excited because they were counting the worms. You know, count, and they're looking for the bugs and they're looking at the texture of the soil. And um, so that was a real, what's the word, is it valorization? It was really good for us to know that what we'd done. And they were digging up a herbal lay and they were digging a, just an ordinary bit of Italian rye. And it wasn't Italian, just a ryegrass. And, and the ryegrass sod was, it was pretty good. But Chris, they got excited about this herbal stuff and the amount of worms. And, mm -hmm. So that gave me an indication that we were doing the right thing. Um, so we can, and we direct drill, we don't, we try to reduce compaction and I do go mental. I mean, I use contractor for everything. We don't have any of our own machinery anymore. So everything's done with contractor. And the guys, you know, they come in to make the silage and they're not too bothered where they drive or how fast they drive or how many donuts they do in the middle of the field. Yeah. And that drives me a bit mad, but we're always trying to compensate for wheelings. We aerate the farm, we've got a big spiky roller and we, we try to aerate every hectare to, you know, to break any compaction, to get oxygen in. And in, in 2017, we had a, well, what we would call a drought. You guys would laugh. But we, the grass stopped growing. So when you're feeding 1,500 cows at the time, grass only, and it stops growing. Sounds important. I was buying every single load of feed. I didn't know what I was feeding the cows the next day. So they were getting potatoes, they were getting broccoli, carrots, I tried peas, but they just ran out the bottom of the trailer. They weren't, they weren't too good to feed, but, but the field we'd, we'd aerated, and we, we stopped aerating because we thought right, we're, we're going to let moisture out. But the field that we aerated was beside one, obviously beside one that didn't, and it was first to come green. It was first to recover um, when the rain came, and, and I, I just knew at that time, well, look, that, was, that works. It was a demonstration of what we were doing there was working. So, so we aerate, and that helps again with soil health. So yeah, it's all about trying to get the soil um, in really good condition. To, it's, to work at its optimum, just to be, be an efficient machine. Well, that's the thing, and efficiency is something that you keep touching on, and it's so interrelated in terms of how the farm works. I, at the outset of your presentation, was like, well, how can this be economically sustainable? But as I'm speaking with you, it's clear that that's what's driving everything that you're doing on the farm, because actually it is what's making you ultimately sustainable. Like sometimes we feel like when we talk about sustainability, it's just the environment, it's going to cost us a ton of money and not bring benefit back to the business itself and make us sustainable. But it really struck me when you spoke about your daughters and you said, actually, you know, the test of whether this is working will be whether they're able to be farming in 20 years. Can you tell us more about what this the vibe is like in your community? Are other neighbors around you farming in a similar style? Is this becoming the norm in your area? Or are you just an especially driven kind of guy when it comes to data analysis and, and resilience in terms of your business model? Uh, listen, there's no doubt that 
many people think I'm slightly mad. I am, I am an early adopter of things. And all my decisions, though it may be hard for some people to see sometimes, are, are, are business-driven. I just think on a pretty long term when it comes to the investments that we make, um, if I can see or feel um, that this is the right thing to do, that is what I'll do. Um, are other people doing it? Yes. There are lots of people, and there are some extremely, extremely good farmers around me. We are in a, a, a very dense dairy area, densely dense as in number of cows, and efficient, not far from the factory, and there's some really super operators. So, I, I, yeah, a lot of people are doing a lot of stuff in, the, in, the, in, this, um, in this zone. I work particularly closely with the Fast Meters project. I work with four farmers in it, and we're all the same system. And we're all doing these, we're all herbal lays, we're all putting clover in, we're all trying to make our soil better. The guys who are in indoor systems are all trying to get the cows to give more. They're all getting solar panels on. You know, some of them have got gas plants. Um, you know, quite a lot of people are heavily invested in renewables now. A lot of windmills, solar panels, AD plants. Um, the smaller family farm is doing its bit as well, you know, because not everybody's a thousand cow farm. Uh, I mean, our average farm size in our, in our membership is 1.5 million litres. Um, probably probably thousand litres of cow thereabouts. Um, and these people, they're all, everybody's doing something to a greater or lesser extent. We all feel the burden. Um, but, I mean, everybody can also see, right, well, this is beneficial if we do that. Um, so we react to, I think we're very, very close to market pressure. So we react to what's asked of us. You know, we have a big antibiotic reduction programme that's driven by uh, a national programme that, again, the pressure comes through the, the processor. We don't, you know, we don't, we sometimes don't like it. We don't often fight it. But what I, what I see is that we were asked to stop using what are called critical, critically important antibiotics. So they're the ones they use for humans mm -hmm. that they're worried about resistance in. In one year, maybe two, we just stopped using them. Straight off, because of that national program. I remember, my membership will demonstrate zero use of CIAs. Wow. Um, and, I, and in many ways, that made it more difficult for us because they have, we have less choice of what we can use. So then you have to start saying, well, if you can't use these drugs, what else can we do? You know, and that's when it becomes expensive because you've got to start looking at your, your built, your calf shed or your, the environment you're growing animals in. And, that, and that's where it becomes really tricky because you have to be brave to know that we'll pay to make that investment. When your margin's so thin, you have to be really brave. And that's the bit that people probably think I'm mad about because I make that long-term investment. And it's... It's not clear how you get the money back. Belief that you can do it better is important. Because you talked about some of those things you put, you know, tens of thousands of tons of lime on to bring the pH in hopes that you might get more clover. Um, you talked today about, you know, you've got solar panels up. Um, you know, you're working with your fast breeders co-op on the genetic side to make sure you're getting more milk per cow obviously has, um, you know, both the economic and the environmental sustainability piece. Um, but I guess, you know, you, you say other farmers are kind of coming along, isn't this great, but, but you still have the challenge of, 
you know, whether it's retailers, whether it's processors, whether it's government, whether it's end consumers, all of them still, I would think, like to target and say, okay, you are the ones that need to improve. Um, are, you, are you bringing them along or is, are, are they starting to understand that, you know what, no, we're making these investments, it's making a difference. Um, you know, here's, here's the proof and so we're <laughs> back <stuck>. off. <laughs> <laughs> Trust us, we can do this. I don't think we're at that stage yet. That's what the journey we're on. And that's what I was saying in my speech is you must baseline. You must build evidence so that you can, in three years' time, when you do your next carbon footprint or carbon above-ground, below-ground carbon assessment, you must look at the difference. And hopefully, because of the practices you've put in place in farm, you can demonstrate a difference and a small improvement that you are doing it, then we can go out to consumers and say, look, this is what we're doing. And, and there's no point, you know, I could get pretty um, passionate about, you know, the processors expecting this of us. And it does. And we have to push back and say, well, yeah, we'll do our bit, but you're going to have to help us do our bit. Um, but ultimately, we need to provide what our customers want, our consumers want. You know, we need to have them make that choice when they're looking at a supermarket shelf and there's one carton of plant-based and there's one carton of farm-based. We need them to go left and pick the farm-based. And to be able to do that, we need to give them confidence. We need to be able to get that evidence and get those numbers on the package and say, look, this is the, let's be confident of our, our carbon footprint. This is our animal welfare. This is our antibiotic reduction. This is nutritionally um, dense. This is better for you than that in all senses. And that's what it comes down to. And I think we are very connected to that in the UK because of the lack of regulation, or the lack of market regulation. You, just, you, you get the full force quite quickly of, of um, what the consumer wants. And we're not great exporters in the UK. We might need to be or think we can be after Brexit, but we have built our businesses on the internal retail market, and it is the most competitive retail market in the world. Um, you only need to look and see where the investment's coming, like Dallas invested very heavily in Canada, in America, South America. Where's the investment in the UK? That's because it's a tough market. It's a tough market. One thing I will add, though, We've got water, and nobody talks about that. We've got water, and we can produce milk from water without moving water from a country that hasn't got it. And I think that in the long term will be one of our big advantages, and I'm hoping our processor will see that, that we can really produce very environmentally friendly milk, um, and it, with rain that falls, and, and on land that is not being used for any other form of food that could be directly used for human consumption. It's fat and protein from the sun and from the rain. All we're doing is converting solar energy through grass into fat and protein that humans can eat. And you make it sound simple. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, I think it's an amazing story. I love your commitment to leadership in, in this sector and, and to be, being brave and trying new things on your farm and, and seeking it for the, the super long term. So thank you, Rory, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. 
So, if you've enjoyed this interview as much as we enjoyed talking to Rory, give us a follow on Facebook or on Twitter, and make sure to give us a like on your favorite streaming platform, and to check us out at the Canadian Podcast YouTube channel. Mostly you can hear us, sometimes you can see us, uh, but we'd love to hear from you. So if you do have any comments or suggestions, you can drop us a note. Our email is podcast at canadianpodcow.ca. A big thanks, of course, goes to our sponsor, the Dairy Farmers of Canada, uh, both for sponsoring the podcast, but also for having us here at the APC. And of course, our production team, Bruce Sargent and Carl Belanger. We'll see you next time.